one of my favorite things to do as a little guy was to sneak into my dad's office at the church. Although I guess I wasn't always sneaking because a lot of times he was there. But I would go into his office and peruse the vast array of books that he had. It seemed like they went from the floor to the ceiling. Well, and they might have because he did have a lot of books. One of my favorite books to pull down from his shelf was a book called The Pictorial Guide to Biblical Stories. And I can remember crawling up on his, one of his chairs in his office there and flipping through those big pages, little finger out, scanning through the stories, looking at all the pictures, totally captivated by what the Bible had to say. And probably in many respects, though I couldn't articulate it that way, totally captivated by the fact that I, I knew at some level my dad spent all of his time thinking about the stories that I was reading about. And now all these years later, I, I can say I'm still captivated by those stories. It's amazing, really, with all the shifts and changes, the evolution, the enlightenment, one might say, the letting go of certain things, the picking up of others. Here, decades later, I'm still reading the Bible. But the question is, why? Given all that's changed, why would I still read it? And why would I encourage others to still read it? I mean, we know the Bible certainly contains xenophobia and sexism and patriarchy and violence and genocide. Um, It's not a scientific book necessarily, although I suppose there might be some science in there. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. It's not a historical book. We know some things didn't turn out the way the Bible exactly said they turned out. Um, It's not necessarily a book that has a great cosmology. That's outdated. Customs, traditions, and laws are certainly, in many respects, outdated. And we could go on and on. And so, with all the struggles that have been presented by people reading the book in a particular way and then using the book to back up their own position, why would I encourage people to still read it? I don't know. Honestly, for some of you, you probably shouldn't. You should probably step away from it and just give it a long break. Give yourself time to breathe. But for others of us, and when you're ready to step back into it, I would encourage you to read it because, well, that's what the rest of this podcast is about. It's entitled, Why I Still Read the Bible. Thank you for those of you who are plugging into the Patreon page. You can look for it, Jonathan underscore Foster. I appreciate it. You can subscribe for as little as I think three bucks a month. It helps me make more of these podcast episodes. It also really helps me write, which is the thing long term that I probably need to be spending my time on. In addition to some of the other stuff I got going on, but, but writing is really important to me. So thank you for your help there. You can also subscribe to this podcast. You can share it with friends. I mean, you can do any number of things to spread the word if you want. And if you don't want, that's cool too. First, I think I need to talk about how important the idea of humility and intellectual honesty is. Because if you can't read the Bible with humility and intellectual honesty... You should probably just stay away from it, or at the very least, use it sparingly. 
because the Bible isn't something that's going to like magically jump out at you and say something 100% out of context. It's going to take the things you're going through. It's going to take where you're at and amplify it and play with it. In all of this, it seems to me that the Bible is something of a Rorschach test. And so the interpretation you saddle the Bible with may say more about you than it does what you think the Bible actually has to say. Because it's, it's stirring up things inside of you and it's bringing those things out. I think Jesus thought that. I don't know that he said that specifically about the, the Scripture, but I think he thought that what was already inside of us you know, really mattered. He said things like, out of the wellspring of your heart, so your life flows. Uh, there's also a story he talked about in Luke chapter 19. We call it the parable of the talents, I think. You know, something creative like that, the parable of the talents. And he has, he tells a story where he has a nobleman go into a community, tells the community, look, I'm going away. I'm going to come back. I'm going to be the king. So here I'm giving a sum of money to each of you. I'd like you to go do business. So he comes back later. Some of them have done business in his name and are doing a really good job. But there's this one guy who comes to him and says, look, I know you are really, you're a really difficult, you're a hard taskmaster. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. So you're a hard taskmaster. You reap where you don't sow. I didn't want to screw this up. So I just buried the money, and now here you can have it back. And Jesus has the guy who's now the king say, you wicked servant. You thought I was a hard taskmaster. Well, by your words, you are condemned. Because you thought that, that is in fact now what's going to happen. And so he takes his money, gives it to the others, and sends that guy away. It's like the old saying, the person who thinks they can do something and the person who thinks they can't do something are both right. And maybe Jesus is saying, those of you who think God is a hard taskmaster, who's wrathful and angry and is insecure and waiting to punish you, and those who think that God is a loving parent who's motivated not by insecurity, but, but by security and graciousness and goodness. Maybe you're both right. Eric Heller said, be careful how you interpret the world. It's really like that. In other words, if your context is stingy, you're probably going to find biblical passages to justify you being more stingy. If your context is miserly, sure enough, you're going to locate miserly passages, spots in the Bible that are going to reinforce to you that it's good to be miserly. I'm not saying miracles can't happen, but good grief. Getting religious people to read their sacred text differently, that should qualify as a miracle. So hold on to things loosely and and read to learn, read to, to know how to change And bring humility and intellectual honesty into your reading. If not, you're going to use the book to settle down in certain areas and weaponize certain passages. And all of us know that's been done countless times throughout history. Or you'll weaponize them metaphorically and you'll use them to justify your turning your back on another human being. I could be wrong. Uh, Actually, I'm wrong frequently. But in my experience of walking with people, and even in my own life, you know, trying to figure it out myself. Most of the time, without humility and intellectual honesty, that's the way it goes. It goes the way of weaponization. 
So whatever you wind up believing about the sacred text, my only real encouragement is to approach it with humility and intellectual honesty. It's interesting that this particular episode out of season three, you know, we're doing these four, it's like a mini series, why I still pray, why I still Bible, why I still church, why I still Christian. It's interesting how this one about the Bible has been the most challenging. Um, I don't always write everything out, but I usually, you know, put a few things down on paper so that I at least go in the right direction when I hit record. And this time, I've rearranged this way more than any of the others. And I was thinking about that a couple of days ago, and I guess it's not surprising because there's something daunting about talking about the Bible because there's, there's something about words being written down. There's such a strong connotation there. Whenever you see words written down like, oh, this is the way to do it. I mean, someone has spent the time over centuries writing these things down, so obviously you know, this is the right way. Prayers and church, you know, those can kind of be personalized, but it feels like the Bible is like this black and white, here it is. Which is why I think it's so hard to talk about the Bible with some people. Because how do you talk about a bunch of writings that seem to be there to tell you what to do in a way that helps people understand that maybe they're not really there to tell you what to do? I guess that's what I'm doing here, aren't I? In real time. Some of you are like, well, let's get on with it. All right. You're right. Let's get on with it. And what I want to say is don't approach it that way. Don't approach it like a user's manual, like an owner's manual. It's funny about owner's manuals because half the time we don't use them anyhow. We just open up the box and get into the thing and start putting it together without referencing the owner's manual. So I don't know why it is with the Bible that we approach it differently. Well, I guess I know why we probably do, because we recognize the stakes are pretty high, and we want something to tell us what to do. And it feels like that that was the point of the Bible. So we sit down to read what to do, and then we wind up worshiping the words rather than worshiping the one to whom the words point to, which is the embodiment of love. As a Christian, I know that embodiment of love as Jesus. You may not uh, like to identify that way, and that's fine. But love embodied, I think a lot of us could agree together. It's like the point is not to just live a good moral life, but to be in good relationship with each other. Love embodied, wisdom embodied. I think the point of the Bible, again, is to, is to point to someone who shows us how to do that, rather than actual words. But that's hard, especially for us Protestants, because when the band broke up in 1511, Reformation, you know, the Catholics pretty much got the Pope and the Protestants got the Bible. And we've put all this pressure on the Bible. We've, we've wanted it to be authoritative and to tell us everything we need. You know, we said Scripture is the only important thing. And we completely missed how difficult it is to interpret this Scripture. We've put our hope and trust in trying to prove our dogmatic assertions. But the point isn't to prove the Bible. The point is to enter into the story 
and the stories of the sacred texts as they lead you through your story, to be aware of the mystery. Nicodemus, he approaches Jesus at night. It's Nick at night. What is that? John chapter 3, chapter 4, somewhere in there. And Nicodemus basically asks Jesus under the cover of darkness, how could this be? I mean, he's trying to figure it out. And then Jesus starts talking about barometric pressures and wind currents. And he says to Nick, hey, look, who knows where the wind is coming from and where it's going? You can't explain it all away. You can't explain how people change their mind. And of course, we do the opposite. We explain it all away. We got five points and four laws and three steps and the Romans road to wherever. There's no more mystery. We tell people, accept this theory, pray this prayer, and you are magically in. And everything feels mass-produced. It feels more informed by the industrial revolution than by this creative, larger-than-life, cosmic God who's doing something new and unique in our life. Led away by our need to prove, our need to provide certitude and answers to everything, we turn into Bilicis. Biblicists are people who worship the words, who say that the Bible is authoritative on every single thing, who put the Bible under so much pressure to offer the answer to everything that they, they can't see the forest for the trees. And it doesn't work. Biblicism doesn't work. I've tried it. It just doesn't work. First, some texts are impossible to understand. Interestingly enough, some aren't. But no matter how big a biblicist, you don't follow what they say anyhow. For example, while condemning people who live together before marriage, I know of people who work on the Sabbath. So they make a big deal about this whole living together before marriage, which is a topic the Bible doesn't really even address. While they themselves break the Sabbath, which is something the Bible does address. And my point here isn't to point out that it's morally wrong to work on the Sabbath, because good grief, I do every week. It's to point out the inconsistency. So some texts are impossible to understand. But again, some aren't, but we don't follow them anyhow. Uh, Secondly, some texts, they just need explaining. There's the only way you can get to what they're getting at is to appeal to cultural relativity. And I'm all for appealing to cultural relativity, but there are no guidelines existing about when those should be applied. And different people have tried at different times over the years, but there is no consistent guideline. Third, some passages are downright strange. Fourth, some passages are just incompatible with other passages within the same bunch of writings we call the inspired Holy Bible. Like, is it slavery or is it freedom? Because you can make a case for either one depending on where you read in the Bible. Is it sacrifice or is it mercy? It depends on who you're reading. So being a biblicist doesn't really work. Texts are impossible to understand. Texts need explaining by appealing to cultural relativity, though there's no consistent guidelines about when to do that. Some are downright strange. Some passages are just incompatible with other passages. What that all boils down to is there's just too many contradictions or things that don't add up. It just can't be authoritative on everything. And even if it was, this is a point made so well by Christian Smith in a book called uh, The Bible Made Impossible. Even if it was, it doesn't matter. 
Because what's undeniable is how much disagreement there is on a ton of different things, even within the group of people who think it is authoritative on everything. There's so many contradictions that don't add up. It can't be authoritative. And even if it was, the, the point is that it doesn't matter because it's undeniable how even those folks who call the Bible authoritative can't agree together on everything. The sheer incompatibility of that idea, it could stop every biblicist in their tracks, but usually it doesn't. You know, my Bible says, well, the Bible is plain. I just read it plainly. I have a friend who was telling me recently how she got an invitation to be a part of a Bible study group. And my friend responded by saying, because she knew a little bit about the background of that particular Bible study group. And she, re- she responded by saying something like, well, you know, I like to interpret the Bible a bit more liberally. I like to approach it from different angles. I mean, those weren't the words she used exactly. That sounds like something I would say, actually. But, um, but basically, that was the idea. She was afraid of getting boxed into the really constrictive way she knew that they would be interpreting certain passages. And her friend responded, and I've heard this so many times, you probably have as well. Her, her friend responded by saying like, Oh, we just read the Bible for what it says. We let the text do the talking. When people say that to me, here's my normal response. Oh, so you're fluent in Hebrew and Greek. Which doesn't mean just that you know the language. It means that you know the context, the understanding. Oh, you understand the vernacular and the customs of the Iron Age. Oh, you're aware of mythological stories by which the people of the Neolithic time period would have been juxtaposing their ideas of God off of. Oh, that's so cool how you're aware of how specific mimetic contagions manifested themselves within the Levitical priesthood. Sweet, you read the Bible, you just let the Bible talk? That means you get the Babylonian customs and traditions out of which the First Testament came out of. That's so cool. You have such a strong understanding of all these things that you're able just to sit down and read the text plainly? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my normal response. I wish, that, I wish I could remember to say that every time someone said that to me. Well, I probably have more to say about Biblicism because it's colored so much of my context. But there's probably a lot of good... I know there are good people who are doing the best they know how to do. I just wish they knew about the freedom of grace and that they don't have to load the Bible down with so much expectation, putting pressure on it, putting pressure on themselves. There's freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. A while back, my niece texted me. She had been in some, in a series of conversations with some folks who were probably practicing biblicists. And among other things, she said, talking with a biblicist is like trying to paint without colors. <laughs> I thought, man, I got to use that sometime. So here I am. I'm using it. Well, I still haven't answered the question, have I? The the point of the episode, good grief, why I still read the Bible. Okay, I have to get into it. Okay, why I still read the Bible. Number one, well, honestly, because I have to. (laughs) I'm a pastor of a Christian church, for crying out loud. And while half of my congregation would probably be fine, I recognize that the deep attachment Christians have with the Bible 
should be there and will always be there. And so I'm just being honest with you. I got to stick with this thing. Secondly, I'll say I still read the Bible because I have to admit that it is the soil out of which the forest of Christianity has sprung. Now, it's not the same thing as Christianity because the forest goes places that the soil can't. But they're obviously always going to be interconnected at some level. Fortunately, though, folks like me see the journey that the Bible seems to be on itself. The soil itself seems to be a bit agitated. Uh, Girard talks about, René Girard talks about how the Bible is a book in travail. I think Brueggemann talks about how it's written within the fray all the while as it struggles to get above the fray. And since we brought up uh, René Girard, I would say that you can sense that in certain passages more than others, that they're written by people who are struggling within the vortex of mimetic contagion rather than a position from outside of the vortex. I mean, there are times when Paul treats Peter or Barnabas in very rivalrous ways. He incites competition and conflict more than grace. And there are certainly times when Israel is caught up in a vortex of mimetic contagion. They're acting more like their enemies than a people chosen by God to be revelatory of who God really is. So it's a record, it's a map, again, I guess it's a, it's a type of soil out of which Christianity springs. So I'm suspicious of it sometimes, but I still read it. Thirdly, I still read the Bible, well, because Jesus did. He's obviously not reading the later Testament that I have access to, but he was a part of a tradition that regularly read the First Testament. And as an adult, he's constantly quoting people from the First Testament, from Deuteronomy. He's quoting Moses from Exodus, the prophets, David. He loves Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea and Amos and on and on. So it was a part of his life. And I do think that his life is worth emulating, so I attempt to make it a part of mine. Lastly, and this is probably the biggest one, I suppose, I still read the Bible because it introduces me to Jesus. And Jesus is something of code for me, but not like in a metaphysical, his blood paid for my forgiveness kind of a way. I don't even really understand how that works. I mean, how much blood would have needed to have been spilled in order for God to get into a position where he could offer forgiveness? We call that the division of labor. And I'm not trying to be flippant or cute with it, but was it like a pint of blood? Was it a quart of blood? Was God at 38 lashes with the whip, you know, still angry, but at the 40th lash, like, okay, that's enough. Now I can forgive. I don't even know how that works anymore. So when I talk about Jesus being like code for me, I don't mean in that metaphysical, magical kind of transactional way that many, many people will use it. But rather as he's code, like he opens up, like it's a passcode, you put it in, and he opens up all these different layers of how to read the text and how to read my life and how to understand my life better. He's embodied love and wisdom, and he was embodying love and wisdom in such a unique way that it challenges me. And ironically, it keeps me going back to the text, which is odd because the text is where I first learned about Jesus, and then Jesus helps me learn how to read the text. And he keeps telling me when I read him and listen to him and pay attention to him, 
to trust God, to trust God, that we have a good God. He's really good. I mean, the prodigal son story, probably his most famous story, that's, that's what the story is about. It's not really about a prodigal son. It's really about a good and gracious father and how he's a, he's a parent who loves us. What the Bible seems to be for me more than anything else is the thing that leads us to understand that God is good. And it leads us to this person of Jesus who is embodied love. And Jesus reveals our violent and scapegoating mechanism. It helps me read the text and my life in a way that helps me to stay away from that as much as I possibly can. But he also reveals our obsession with biblicist fundamentalism because he kept reforming the rules in the tradition. Like when they brought the lady caught in adultery to him, he didn't say, yep, Bible says the stoner, who's got the rocks? No, he actually says something new. He says, who's without sin? Whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. So Jesus is the one I find that is constantly and consistently saying something new. And amazingly, the new things he says, they always revolve around mercy and people and love. You can't trump Jesus with Moses or Paul or Joshua, for that matter, or anyone else. You can't seriously believe that every word in the text is on equal par with Jesus. I mean, you don't live that way. You don't live like some obscure Leviticus rule is equitable with the Sermon on the Mount. Why would you expect me to preach that or say that on a podcast? It's because it's not true. So Jesus seems to me to reveal our obsession, and it's my obsession too sometimes, with biblicist fundamentalism. I'll also say that Jesus reveals our egotistic sense of enlightenment, the kind of enlightenment that would lead us to think that relationship can come out of reason instead of the other way around. That meaning is developed by getting everything straight in our computer brains. Reading the enjoyment that Jesus got just by being around his friends, his disciples, the partiers for crying out loud, the castaways. I mean, the depth of humanity within these people are astounding. And Jesus wasn't put off by being with them. His life flowed out of it and into it. So it wasn't reasoning first. It wasn't like Descartes, I think, therefore I am. It was relationship first. It was more of the African Ubuntu's, we are, therefore I am. I'm not saying there's no point in reasoning. I mean, good grief. It's half of what I do on this podcast and write and lay awake at night thinking about. I'm just saying that Jesus, as embodied love, constantly redirects me back to people and to the world. So reason comes out of relationship, not the other way around. Well, I'm sure I could list a few more things to let you know that the reason I read the Bible is to get to Jesus. But I guess I'll end with, it seems as though the more I imitate him, which by the way is positive, mimetic contagion, the more I imitate him, the more I see goodness within myself. I think this is really important. I think being aware of self and embracing the goodness within yourself it's really important. My friend Mark Karras in his book, Religious Refugees, which everyone should probably read, especially if you're listening to this podcast, you would like that book. But he's constantly in that book bringing it back to self-compassion. Self-compassion is the key. And I think that's true. And the more I read about Jesus, the more I, the more I enter into a self-compassion that I think is healthy and good, that it allows me to give that compassion to the world because you can't give what you don't have. 
I've read a lot of Walter Wink over the years, and I really like his writing. It's challenging, but I really like it. He talks about Jesus being incarnate God in his own person to show us all how to incarnate God. He thinks, and I'm inclined to agree, that to incarnate God is what it means to be fully human. So I read the Bible to see how Jesus became fully human so I can become fully human. And as Jesus becomes fully human, he is channeling, so to speak, if I can use that language, the goodness of God. For me to become fully human means to channel the goodness of God as well. I really don't try to be Jesus with skin on anymore, which was a phrase sometimes used in my old tradition. I don't try and be God to people. I just try to be myself and trust that God likes me as I am and that God is with me already. I see that in Jesus. And though I heard about Jesus in other places outside the Bible and continue, for sure, it is the primary place I learn about him. So I keep reading that, recognizing that I really think he's trying to empower me, that I I really think he believes in me, and I really think he believes in you too. The religious institutions have conditioned us to think that we're not good enough, that we need to acquiesce and absolve our power, that only Jesus was the perfect one and the good one and the right one. And so we got to step back and let him do all the work. I see that in the story of the disciples. They were conditioned to think that too. They came to Jesus and said, hey, the people are hungry. And Jesus looked at him and said, well, what do you got to feed him? You guys feed him. On the boat, when there was that big storm that one time, they woke Jesus up and Jesus got frustrated with them. Especially if you read the story in Mark, it's like a very grumpy Jesus. He calms the storm and then he looks at all of them and says, why do you have such little faith? It's almost as if he's saying, you guys are fishermen. We're out on a boat in a storm. You've been here before. Next time you calm the storm, you can do this. I read these kinds of things with Jesus. I think he believes in us. I don't always think that's true of the religious institutions. They don't necessarily want us to believe in ourselves because then we might get crazy ideas and start thinking for ourselves. God isn't scared by that. God isn't insecure in that way. I see that all in this Hebrew man, Yeshua. I read about him primarily in the Bible, and that's why I keep coming back to the Bible. I hope this was meaningful. I don't know, man. Reading the Bible is difficult. Honestly, I do less of it than I used to, but I don't imagine I'll ever fully get away from it. Hey, and if it's helpful, I list some of the resources that have been helpful for me in the show notes, so you can check those out, see what you think, and hit me up with some comments on this. Good stuff. All right, thanks for spending time with me today. Peace. Peace.